Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We are broadcasting from the Detroit Public Library main branch on Woodward Avenue in Midtown Detroit, the grand finale of our Detroit Today Summer Book Club. Uh, throughout the summer and at each of our Detroit Today Summer Book Club events, we've really, really been struck, not only by the role of tenants in the eviction conversation, but of landlords, the landlords who own property and rent to poor people, the ones who have to keep up their properties and provide decent houses for their tenants, and the ones who, when people fall behind on their rent, may find themselves in the role of evictor, putting people out and their belongings into the street. Just like housing insecurity is a complicated issue for tenants, so it is for landlords. The harsh caricature of the uncaring overseer tossing people and their families out of housing, it just doesn't do enough to explain the nuance of circumstance and emotion that attends evictions from the landlord's side. This is made manifest in Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, by the ways in which he draws really detailed portraits of the landlords he meets in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Here's author Matthew Desmond on the complicated role that landlords play. Depending on our politics, you know, we can rush to judgment on, on both sides. You know, we could say, oh, these tenants, they're just lazy, or oh, these landlords, they're just greedy. And I'm sure you, you learn this, right, going out and, and talking to folks. It's much more complicated than that. And, you know, Sharina, Arlene's landlord in the book, I think you see her wrestle with the pain of eviction. You know, sometimes she can be really sterile about it, you know, kind of uh, all business about it. But sometimes it really eats her up, you know. And I remember when she was um, wrestling with evicting someone in the book uh, named Lamar, and, you know, she was just going back and forth about that. And finally she says, you know, I love him, but love don't pay the bills, mm. <laughs> you know. And it was this, this moment of, of clarity. And, you know, we, our cities, our nation, we haven't given landlords that many more options when someone falls behind on rent. So I think that we need to think of the steps that landlords can take when, you know, someone can't pay the rent to eviction. I've, I've talked to a lot of landlords and they've said, you know, what can we do? Or what, what should we do? And I think that our answer should be there are a million things we can do before we get to that kind of eviction step. Eviction should be the last step hmm. and not the first. Eviction should be the last step, Matthew Desmond says, and not the first. So is that true? We have asked three landlords who we've met during our summer of discussion about evicted here to talk about how they deal with eviction. Uh, Tim and Megan Van Est uh, are landlords in Warren. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and Andre Watson is a landlord and entrepreneur who lives in Ann Arbor, but grew up here in Detroit. Andre, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Yeah. So, Tim, let's talk about what happens in your business when people fall behind on the rent and you're not sure that they can catch up. Oh, when I become not sure mm -hmm. that they, they can catch up, we're having, just, you know, you just have to start the process. The clock has to start ticking at that point, serving a notice. Uh, generally speaking, when you're working with a, a tenant that's telling you the truth, um, I got laid off for a week. I'm delayed by a week. And then a week later, they're able to work, you know, work something out, and they're making, keeping in touch on the telephone. And 
that's a different story. But if you really become unsure or you're not told the truth about what's going on or Thursday comes and they said they were going to pay Thursday, Thursday comes and then another Thursday comes and you're not hearing from them at all and you're not answering, well, then you know what has to happen. You've got to make a move. Yeah. And, and talk about how that feels for you then when you do have to make that decision about maybe a person, maybe a family, maybe a family with children to put them out of a unit. One of the worst sounds in the world is crashing dishes into a garbage bag when you're literally evicting somebody. Or a little curly-headed kid that has grabbed you around the knees to say, you know, greeted you, grabbing you around the knees and said hi. And her mom is who you have to put out. I mean, there's nothing, nothing enjoyable about that at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, you know, for me, I've had a personal relationship with them that begins with the application. You know, the application process can be a little bit intrusive, um, but you have a personal relationship with them, and you're a lot of them paying you in cash, so it's face to face. Uh, there's nothing fun about moving somebody out and ending a relationship that should be good for both of us. You know, we're in this together. Believe it or not, it doesn't matter what your income level is or what your situation. I need them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they need me but I really do need them. Yeah, uh, Megan, I know you uh, help manage the Vanist po uh, properties for your dad, but you also work for another rental company. Talk about the things you learn about the people who are renting from you guys uh, and the way in which they get all tangled up and end up in this, uh, this cycle of eviction. We have a much less personal relationship with people for the company that I work for. There are um, 1,100 properties. And so a lot of decisions are made behind a computer. You know, we, I tend to go, I deal a lot with the apartments in Detroit. And I tend to be the face that they see when I'm knocking on their door, hey, can we talk about this? Can we make a payment plan? Sometimes I'm able to, sometimes I'm not. Um, and then, I have so many people that I need to deal with. Sometimes I don't see them again until it's coming to the end of our relationship as a manager and a tenant. And I, I do see them when they're on their way out. And it can be very heartbreaking. Uh, Andre, uh, you're an entrepreneur, uh, somebody who buys properties and rents them as a way of conducting business. Uh, and you're somebody who's trying to move up in that, in that business as well. I know we've so, talked about that. Yeah. So talk about the tension then between what you want and what you're striving to create for yourself and what you have to maybe do uh, to the people who pay you. Well, my approach is a little bit different. I, um, I try to be, believe it or not, um, I try to find some sincere connection with the renters. I don't manage as many as you guys do. Um, but I, I prefer to have a personal connection. So I leave myself somewhat vulnerable. And when my instinct tells me that they're not being sincere, then I have to activate. Fortunately, I think I build really good rapport and it has worked. Thank God I haven't had to do an eviction in years. And I'm so thankful. Um, and I was raised in the west side of Detroit, and we rented forever. I never knew we rented, mm -hmm. uh, and I found out at 18 years old. <laughs> and, and so it was very relatable. 
I'm normally a sucker if I see anything that reminds me of myself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> during my experience as a, as a youth. So as long as they keep a sincere open line, sometimes I do lose money, but not a lot. And oddly enough, it has worked. And I try to buy in select areas, and I try to educate them along the way. It's been a little weird, you know, friendly that way, mm-hmm. but... It has worked. Yeah. So, so Matthew Desmond says in that clip, uh, eviction needs to be the last resort, not the first. And I think Correct. most landlords uh, probably approach it that way because yeah. uh, eviction costs landlords money too, right? Uh, you're putting someone out. You're maybe uh, keeping the place empty for a while. You got to get a new tenant. Right, well, go ahead, Tim. There's two things that happen when you're not get, when you don't get paid, and you have to move somebody out. You're not going to get paid, and you're going to spend money to restore the to the get property. a new. Yep. So you're being stretched in two op- opposing directions at that time. You don't want a vacancy. Yeah. So, so I'm really curious though uh, about the ends, I guess, to which you go as landlords to avoid that. Uh, I mean, I know that there are rules. Uh, you have contracts, but I also know that that sometimes you have to talk to people on that one-on-one level and come up with. Uh, a solution. Talk about the the maybe unusual circumstances uh, that you've worked out with tenants. I'm going through one right now where I just don't have confidence in what I'm told by either party. Mm-hmm. And I've we're now at a point where I have the order of eviction in my hand. It's been posted on their property. So the only mm-hmm. thing that I can do now is call the court officer to physically move them out. Mm-hmm. So. I, Others, I have another family that's been with me there. It's a family of five, husband, wife, and three kids. And every year they get into me for thousands of dollars. And I'm just uh, softy for them. This same woman, two years ago, came to my door, surprised me with a $5,000 check, completely catching her up. Mm -hmm. So I I didn't expect that. They can't live anywhere else. They're just going to suffer wherever they go. Uh, Megan, I'm curious, the company you work for uh, is, as you say, a much bigger operation, has to operate uh, a little differently than the way your dad does it, but is eviction a a choice of last resort for them as well, or is it sort of further along the line? We have a lot of hard and fast rules with the company that I work for, and everything follows a system. And there is less of a personal relationship. Um, we can't bend the rules a ton. Um, I'm very thankful that I've worked for my dad prior because there's much, um, many fewer um, residents, and we have more of a personal relationship, and mm-hmm. everything can be kind of bent towards what the situation needs. It's taught me a lot more about people, their needs, how, how life works, and I'm just thankful that I was able to learn it another way because I'm afraid that if I didn't, I might get caught up in the black and white of things. Mm-hmm. Um, making decisions behind a computer is far different than when you're facing people every day and making that human else. connection. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, Andre, how, how have you, as you say, you've not gotten to the point where you feel like uh, you have to break that tie or that relationship with a tenant. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you've done to avoid that? Well, I, I, um, my attitude is really almost like uh, 
I always get in trouble with this stuff, but uh, it's like my purpose. I really, uh, I want to strengthen uh, my community and uh, my background is in finance. And so I understand like what's happening with gentrification and I understand what's happening with rents that are moving in Detroit and uh, is very uncomfortable for many of our, uh, of my, you know, members of my community. So I get caught up in the purpose of empowering uh, my tenants, believe it or not. Um, well, and how do you find that? So, so I mean, I think that's a really admirable approach to, mm -hmm. to this problem, but does it ever come back to, to bite you? And, oh, yeah. and do you have stories of people who have moved beyond where they were when they started with you and, and been success stories? Yeah, it has come at a cost. Um, but I've also been blessed tremendously. And, uh, you know, every time I find a good deal on a property, I challenge myself to be a real blessing hmm. to the uh, tenant. And I tell them, and I adjust their rent accordingly um, because I'm able to, because I think I was blessed with the property, so let me. And so when you come sincerely at people, sometimes they look at you like, what's your angle? <laughs> Everybody gets weird about it, but it has worked. And I call it, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm spiritual, I'm not terribly religious, but I do call it, you know, a blessing. And I think I've been afforded an opportunity to use my faith and stay centered at trying to be right and still being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to ask each of you the same question. Uh, and it's about whether you feel like housing insecurity, the housing insecurity that people face, evictions, all these other things that, that move people around, are, are they solvable? Are they uh, things that we can come up with ideas that would stop people from being in that position? And, and of course, I'm going to say up front, you know, uh, if we solved poverty, uh, we would solve all of these things, right? And we would just run out tomorrow and uh, solve poverty, uh, and these things would go away. But mm. given that that's probably not going to happen, what are some of the other things that you see as solutions to this? I'll start with you, Tim. Primary thing uh, we need to do is invest in people uh, from a standpoint of education, empowering them, let, let them know what some of their options are. Many times they just have no vision beyond their present circumstance. But investing in people, the, the local, the community college, uh, and we have to pay them. Uh, I'm sorry, $11 an hour is not going to get you a, a, an apartment. A decent apartment, yeah. Got to yeah. pay people, and we got to educate people. Megan? I met a woman today who came to one of my showings for a tiny 500-square-foot apartment, mm -hmm. and she has SSI, and as a, a management company, we require three times the rent, a 30% rent-to-income ratio, mm -hmm. and she said, you mean to tell me I can't get this? for what I get, and I, I will think about that for days. Mm -hmm. um, we need to maybe find a way to make housing vouchers a little bit more accessible. Um, she told me that she does not have Section 8. Um, she's on a waiting list. Mm -hmm. um, I mean... And that SSI is all she has. Uh, yeah, the SSI is all she has, and it's such a small amount, like it was talked about in the book, it's not sustainable for the rest of the month. Yeah. Wow. What happens when she needs to go to the doctor and 
it's heartbreaking to tell somebody who needs a place to stay that mm. this tiny apartment in Detroit is out of their reach. That's horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Andre? Yeah, I, I think that um, our social system, social services, um, whoever's over like the prisons, um, I think they should really engage landlords more because we do get a lot of valuable intel that could translate to solutions. Mm. I think like DPS, you know, so they went through a lot of challenges. So you work on a curriculum design for young people on how to own a home. I think you, social services, if you're very frustrated at parts that aren't effective, um, try to creatively get into that household and assist before you have to put a Band-Aid on it. Homeownership is empowerment. Um, we can't let what's happened with the black and brown people, who, you know, our community who's lost their home ownership during the big decline, that wealth impact will be felt somewhere, mm -hmm. dramatically impacting that household's future. Mm -hmm. And then America will get wobbly because it's out of sync looking and feeling like a third world country. These levels of vulnerability are unacceptable. Yeah. Okay, Tim Van Est and Megan Van Est, thanks to both of you for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Also, Andre Watson. Thank you very much. Great to see you again. All right, up next, we are going to hear about the other side of the housing insecurity equation. We're going to talk about it from a neighborhood perspective and from a very personal perspective. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We are live at the Detroit Public Library main branch on Woodward Avenue for the grand finale of our Detroit Today Summer Book Club. If you're a regular listener of our show, you know that one of the things in life that means the most to me is the Tuxedo Project, which is where a literary and community center exists in the house where my family lived when I was born on the city's west side. Rose Gorman is the literary fellow who lives there and runs the two centers. And over the past year of our work in that space, we have learned a lot about our neighbors. We've learned about folks who don't really have a place to live and who squat in homes on our block. We've learned about people who face tax foreclosures and the possibility of losing their homes. And we've learned a lot about those who get bounced from place to place because of the threat of eviction. I want to welcome Rose Gorman to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And with Rose is Rachel Allen, a friend that Rose has made through our writing workshops at the Tuxedo Project, who has her own very personal story about how eviction affected her as a child and frames the way she thinks of home now. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. All right, before we get into those stories, though, I want to play this thought from author Matthew Desmond on the impact of housing insecurity on families and on kids. Well, I mean, it's so true that the face of this problem is just moms with kids, you know? Mm -hmm. And you walk in about any urban housing quarter in the country and you just see a ton of kids. Until recently, eviction court in the South Bronx in New York City literally had a daycare inside of it because there were so many kids coming in. It was like, you know, the South Bronx eviction court daycare, you know. I mean, 
I think we can line it up. You know, when kids are not able to go to the same school year after year, they can't form friendships, relationships with teachers and guidance counselors. They can't have a chance at, you know, reaching their full potential under those conditions. We have evidence that shows that eviction pushes families into worse neighborhoods and into worse housing. We know those things are really bad for kids' development if they're surrounded by, you know, violence, for example, if they're living in unstable or uh, unhealthy housing conditions. We have a study that shows eviction causes uh, depression in mothers two years later. That has to have an effect on how uh, well they can parent as well. So we're still getting after this question. We're still really, we really want to document the wreckage it's having in the kids' lives, but the things we've learned already uh, are pretty st- pretty startling. So Rachel, uh, I was watching you listen mm-hmm. uh, to Matthew there and seeing how heavily those words probably visited on your mind and on your heart. Uh, I want to start with you telling the story of your childhood, uh, what what it was like, but then I want you to also catch us up to where you are now and what you're doing and how what happened to you as a child affected you. Well, first off, Stephen, uh, my family grew up in Detroit, and we started off living here in the Sojourner Truth Homes. And so as a five- or six-year-old kid, I had no knowledge or concept that we were living in the projects, especially because we were the first people to live in them. So they were new and they were clean. And then uh, at some point, the rent got too high there, and my mother was able to buy a home. So we lived there, and we were only the second black family on our block. And there was something that happened, let's say a couple years later, that ultimately caused my mother to lose the home. And so at that point, we moved around from place to place. And so the very first house that we moved in, you know, we were excited to be there. And then a few months later, we were evicted. And so I write this piece about coming home from school one day and just it being a regular you know, school day and coming home to seeing all of our contents on the curb. And so what caused me to have a visceral reaction to that clip was that Matthew Desmond used the word wreckage. And so that is a very great way to describe what being evicted feels like because you could literally go to school one day and come home and have no knowledge that you are moving that day. You haven't told your friends that you're moving. You haven't seen the new place that you're going to. And so that is something that I still get emotional talking about because it's never something you get over. It's just never something you can get over. And then unfortunately, we experienced eviction about six times in a five-year period. And that ultimately caused me to say I would just rather live on my own as a 17-year-old single mom because striking out on my own had to be better than facing eviction one more time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we met Rachel, as I said, at the Tuxedo Project uh, earlier this, uh, this summer and as part of one of the writing workshops there. And I remember the first time I talked to you, uh, that was a momentous time in your life because of some of these things that happened to you when you were a kid. Talk about what happened this summer. So my husband and I bought a home together, and it's in Farmington Hills, which is a beautiful community to live in. Uh, But the closing process took a lot longer than it was supposed to. And so what should have been just a joyous occasion brought up every single feeling of anxiety and fear that I knew had to be from my housing insecurity as a kid. So my husband has grown up in the same home 
for all of his life. His parents lived there, and they've only known that home. And so for me, he could not understand why I was freaking out all the time. And so I had to just write about it because I really didn't have another medium to explain why I feel so awful about this process and why I felt so depressed and why I was so anxious to hurry up and find a place. And by putting some words to those feelings, what I discovered is that this was an unresolved trauma for me because we had never left a home on good terms. And so leaving the home that we sold was the very first time that I was able to say goodbye to a home. And so it meant everything to me to not hire a cleaning company to clean it. I walked every single room on the day that we left, cleaned it, had made my peace, and cried because it was the first time that I had some control over leaving a place that I had called home. Yeah. How do you sleep in the new house? Oh, my God. I mean, the first night we slept on the floor and I was just so excited to be there. I mean, I invited Rose over. I invited friends over. I drank wine and we were just so happy to be there, you know, and for a split second, even at the closing, I kept thinking this isn't real. They have not sold us a home because we ran into so many challenges and it was really hard not to listen to those messages of you know you can't afford this house or they're not selling it to you because you're black or you don't deserve this house and I think what eviction unconsciously teaches you is you are not worthy of the same kind of home as everyone else is and so you go through life feeling not worthy of living in certain neighborhoods or living in a certain quality type of home and so it's been really important that I help my children understand we are worthy because we're simply worthy. And we also are worthy because we've worked hard to be here. And so if I were to ever have anybody second guess our ability to pay for this home or be in it, that's the furthest thing from the truth. And so it's a really proud thing for my husband and I both to be able to sleep you know, in a home that we've provided for our families and we chose this neighborhood because of the good schools and we really did our due diligence and you know called the assessor's office about taxes because i understand how momentous this is for them and our hope is that our children will never have to move from this home yeah. <laughs> uh, rose gorman uh, we brought you to detroit uh, almost a year ago this month is that right exactly. uh, 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 to be the literary fellow uh, at the Tuxedo Project, uh, I mean, uh, almost immediately, uh, as we were talking about how to build out literary programming uh, in this space, we were confronted with the reality of what our neighbors' lives look like. And there are a lot of insecurities uh, in this neighborhood. This is a neighborhood behind St. Cecilia uh, Parish over on Livernois and Grand River. As I said, it's where my family lived when I was born. Uh, my dad lived there until he died in the mid-1980s. I grew up sort of in and around that neighborhood. It's very different now than it was then. Uh, there are a lot of empty houses. There are lots and lots of struggling families. But talk about some of the things that we've learned uh, about our neighbors over the last year? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, there's a lot of housing insecurity, but that comes from like a huge punch list 
of other societal issues. Um, I think uh, one of the previous panelists spoke about education, um, lack of education, lack of economic opportunity, um, but there are also real mental health issues. And um, I think all of that kind of goes into the different ways that we see um, housing insecurity, um, everything from tax foreclosure, um, overcrowding in some houses, mm -hmm. um, substandard housing for people who really do, who actually have a roof over their heads. Um, that's probably all that they have and they barely have that. Um, and most recently, I think homelessness mm -hmm. has actually shown itself. Um, you know, I've just noticed people um, parking outside of the house and sleeping in front of the house because we have our porch light on there. So it takes a lot of different forms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the connection of those issues, though, uh, is one of the things that I think has really jumped out at me over the last year, that, uh, that housing insecurity doesn't exist on its own, that food insecurity, which is another thing that we deal with a lot on the block, doesn't it affects exist people's relationship own. with the literary center. That's right. You know, people will come and sit through a book club or a poetry reading just so they can have a meal. And when we have food in the center, which we try to do for a lot of the programming, uh, people come back. Mm -hmm. People come back the next day often and ask, is there still food from the day before? Yeah. Uh, people come back and ask when we might have another event uh, with food. And, and food insecurity, housing insecurity, uh, the mental health issues you're talking about, they're all kind of interconnected for the people there. Uh, Rachel, I, I wonder what you tell your children about your childhood. Uh, as parents, we all struggle with that, right? Things that happen to us as kids that we want to protect our kids from. But then there comes that moment when you feel like you have to explain why you react the way you do or why you think the way you do. And uh, I'm really curious what those moments look like for you. So I have my 12-year-old daughter here with me, and I am going to venture to say this is probably the first time she will ever have heard me talk about this experience really? in this way. And so while my kids may understand that we had a challenging childhood and there were lots of things that we experienced, I probably purposefully have not mentioned the word evicted. And as a matter of fact, I told her this was a book club about the book evicted. And, I, and she said, well, what does that mean? And so I had to explain that there is a difference between moving and being evicted. And so I have this memory of being about 25 when I realized that you know when the bailiffs are coming. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, they tell you that they're coming. And that was an epiphany because it almost suggested that there would have been a way to have prevented us from seeing the wreckage on the curb. And so that's something that I have never wanted my kids to experience. And so much so I probably have never even articulated that word because it just felt like such a dirty, shameful word to say. Hmm. What do you imagine the conversation between you and your 12-year-old daughter will be like in the car on the way home <laughs> tonight? It's a good Can question. Can we ask her now? <laughs> yeah. no, I'm Sorry, I'm not going to put you yeah, on. We can bring you know, her <laughs> I, I really want my children to just understand why what we're doing and what they see from their mom is so awesome. And I don't really know the word to say other than that because the odds were stacked against me so that none of the things that happened to me should have been allowed to happen. I should have never been able to graduate high school, going to 10 different schools in 12 years. 
I should have never been able to graduate high school. So much so that I went to high school with people who would say, I have a twin sister, and they'd say, I wish we could see you guys here five days a week. You're never here five days straight. What they didn't understand is that we caught three buses to get to the Detroit School of the Arts. So I should have never been able to graduate high school. I should have never been able to graduate college. I should have never been an entrepreneur. I should have never been a homeowner. And this home that we purchased is actually my third home that I've purchased. And so I say that because my kids take for granted mm -hmm. that, they, that they saw me do these things. And most of that time, they saw me do it as a single mom. And so it's important that I share this story so that I can get through the pain. It's still there. And it's by the grace of God that I'm not crying right now because it's not something you just openly tell people that you've experienced. Mm -hmm. Because where else does it become relevant to tell someone no we didn't just move but we got evicted multiple times in the winter you know and had to sleep on floors and and hopefully be rescued by my grandfather mm -hmm. every single time you know the bailiffs came wow it's wow. been a tough thing to talk about yeah uh rose uh you're somebody who's somewhat you're new to detroit still uh, you're not new to, to dealing with tough issues. Uh, you came here from, from Brooklyn where you were working with the New York Writers Coalition and, and working with uh, at-risk populations on writing workshops there. But I wonder if there are things that you've seen here in Detroit, uh, in this neighborhood where I'm from, that surprised you or that you hadn't really encountered before. Yeah, I think... I never realized how isolated people are. Um, you know, access to information, definitely, but also access to spaces outside of their block. Mm -hmm. um, and in New York, you know, I took that for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, just you can easily <laughs> walk out the door, walk out the, the door, um, or give someone a metro card. Um, but transportation is a real thing. Rachel, I wonder if you have thoughts about uh, what could have been different for your parents, uh, what could have gone differently in your childhood that would have spared you some of the things that you experienced. Well, I definitely think the home ownership piece is really important. Um, I think the challenges that my mom faced were not unlike what most people would have faced. And if there would have been a way to have kept her in that home, I think the trajectory of our life would have been very different. Mm -hmm. uh, because that was the place that we considered home for the longest. And so, you know, all these years later, it still holds that meaning because we simply stayed there the longest. So I also have a relative that we were able to intervene and assist her with purchasing a home. And we saw the housing insecurity go away. And for the first time, you know, our relatives and her children were able to stay in the same schools and, you know, enjoy multiple Christmases in a particular home. So I think the home ownership piece is vitally important, especially making sure that people are aware of the resources that are available. As we, you know, let through this book series, I just really started thinking about what are some things that would have been helpful. And what I thought of was something as simple as dignity in moving. So in moving my own family, I was very strategic about boxing our things up and labeling them because there is some dignity that you lose when all of your items are subjected to being thrown in garbage bags. Mm. And so I don't know if it exists, but allowing people to access things like boxes when they move will at least offer them that sense of dignity that says, even if I have to put it in bonded storage like a lot of the people in the story had to do, 
at least when it's time to retrieve them, they know where they are and they have a sense of ownership because that's generally, once you've lost your home, you've lost your belongings and you don't have anything left after that. Okay, Rose Gorman, Literary Fellow at the Tuxedo Project. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And Rachel Allen, thank you for being here. Thank you. Up next, we're going to hear from you, the audience here at the Detroit Public Library main branch on Woodward Avenue, and continue the conversation about Matthew Desmond's evicted and housing insecurity in Southeast Michigan. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are live at the Detroit Public Library main branch on Woodward Avenue, wrapping up our Detroit Today Summer Book Club. Now we want to get you involved to talk about housing insecurities that you see here in Southeast Michigan. And we are going to keep Rachel Allen and bring back Andre Watson, both of whom grew up here in the city. To start this conversation, I want to hear from Matthew Desmond one more time. Here are his thoughts on the way we think of poverty when we talk about trying to solve housing insecurity. You know, we're the richest democracy with the worst poverty. That's who America is. We've had a kind of poverty that's much worse than poverty in other advanced capitalist societies. And so I think we as a country need to reckon with that. And I think to get to these big solutions, we have to have a theory of poverty. You know why? You know, what's going on? And there's two big theories of poverty today. You know, if we're more conservative, we say it's, it's about what you have inside of you. It's individualistic. It's your lack of skills, maybe your lack of certain values. And then you have, if you're more progressive, you have what's called a structural theory of poverty. We have these legacies that we're left with, the legacy of racism and the legacy of deindustrialization that hit a city like Detroit right in the gut. And, uh, and we're, we're cleaning up the mess now. And... Uh, those are kind of pitted against each other, but there, there's another way of thinking about it, which is, you know, poverty is a relationship. It involves you and me and everyone else. You know, how are our tax credits or the, the safety that, uh, or lack of safety that are in our children's schools or in our neighborhoods tied uh, to other kinds of schools and neighborhoods, other places? Okay. Let's get to some audience questions or comments here. Name and city, just like on the show. Uh, John uh, Gross Point. Mm -hmm. um, the last uh, couple people there talked about information and people not getting information. And uh, that is a huge problem, but I seem to think of it more as a deliberate uh, effort to not inform. Mm. Uh, I've noticed that the... Um, People, uh, well, for one thing, um, property taxes in Detroit were over-assessed for years, mm -hmm. uh, and people were never informed. Uh, it finally took uh, an attorney from Chicago with the ACLU to file a lawsuit, and tens of thousands lost their property because they were not informed. Um, I work with a group called Detroit Eviction Defense, and people come to us to help help them at the last moment save their homes. And we've been successful in some cases, many cases actually. So we've had people come uh, who have had their property in uh, tax foreclosure 
and they managed to scrape together enough money to get it out of foreclosure, which means paying the taxes for that third year in arrears. Mm -hmm. And they go to the city, and the city says, thank you very much. The city doesn't tell them that they're putting it on the current year, mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. lost their home. Mm -hmm. And do you think they could reverse that? Oh, hell no. Mm -hmm. wow. mm -hmm. And people, so they're not told. They go, they go to the official, and they're not told, oh, by the way, you've got to take this to the Wayne to County. To the Wayne County, right? Yeah. 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 Um, people who don't even have to pay taxes because their income is so low, yet they're never informed. They don't they know pay, about the poverty. And they pay exemption. year after year, and sure. then they lose their home because they can't pay, and they're never told when they pay that, by the way, there's this option. And the option would be as, as simple as having it printed on the statement that comes in the mail saying you owe property taxes. Mm -hmm. By the way, here's for people who don't earn enough, there's an exemption, you need to file, blah. It's not there. Mm -hmm. And it, it, to us, and seeing how the courts side with the, with the landlords 99% of the time, and how the city gives breaks to new people, but not to people who've been here through thick and thin, mm -hmm. the whole thing is uh, a deliberate plan mm -hmm. to remove the poor. Mm -hmm. John, thank you very much for the, the comments. Any reaction to what John's saying there? Sure. Um, I, I believe John has a great point with the um, lack of, it's almost like advocacy, um, to where you could just uh, creatively get that message out to the vulnerable. I, I don't know if um, sometimes our city officials or the, you know, even people who work for the city we need to incentivize them to push and be a little bit more abnormal, go beyond the norm of routinely processing the money as it comes to me. Um, in your scenario about you know paying the wrong year's worth of taxes, um, and I, I think that could be an area of opportunity or the vulnerable within our communities will um, continue to just suffer so I think we need to challenge our leaders to be non-traditional, do something disturbing to the norm, um, or we'll get the same old stuff. And then, and then reward progressive thinking. Reward, hey, I, I'm going to give you a bonus if you implement this in 20 block radius. I, I'm going to give you something. Do whatever it takes. The person who does not incentivize their employees to do that should be fired. Hmm. That will get results because we need that baseline level of support. You already know the population, their levels of vulnerability, and that would allow us to birth out solutions, mm. I think. Mm. Rachel? No, I think that's a really great point. Um, my mother and my sister work for an organization called Good Jobs Now, and one of the initiatives that they've worked on is getting people aware <laughs> of the fact that they are entitled to an exemption if they don't make enough. Mm -hmm. And so if you talk to people on that team or in similar organizations, they will say they literally have to knock on people's doors and say, hey, how much money do you make? You qualify for this. You shouldn't even be paying property taxes. Mm -hmm. And so grassroots organizations like that should be doing more work like that. And it starts there. And if you get enough people mad, then when it's time for their elections to come around and they're having to vote for you know, the different positions, then maybe they will get enough people to rally behind the people who are offering that kind of support. Mm -hmm. Let's go over here. 
Familiar face? Uh, Gene from Detroit. <laughs> Gene from Detroit. Regular caller on the show. <laughs> Go ahead, Gene. Your response to the city's recent rental registration ordinance. Hmm. Mm. That's probably, Andre, you're probably yeah. perfectly Welcome. suited to Welcome. talk about that. Well, right? I think it's... Uh, Can you first I, just explain a little about what, what they're doing? It's just a, it's just a more um, compliant challenge for current landlords. Um, I think in general, um, I know I wasn't polled about it. Uh, <laughs> it was just issued to me, so I don't know if they really got the proper feedback from landlords before making it. Um, but overall, I think it's um, it's it's okay. But I, I would I would have hoped they would have gotten more input from landlords, and not just um, just come through with a blanket policy. And when you say compliance, compliance in what regard? Uh, registration with the city of Detroit, um, and uh, and just again trying to make sure that the the properties are up to code. And there's some structure and accountability um, and just making sure that the landlord is giving the environment most appropriate for the tenants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and the goal there is to, at least ostensibly, is to improve the quality of housing that landlords provide, correct? Correct. But do you think it will do that? And no, I don't think it had enough. I don't know if it took if there was enough energy and effort put into creating it. Hmm. I think it was just something. I don't know. But I think it's a step in the right direction. And I say this as a property owner myself that has mm -hmm. rental property. Mm -hmm. And it does cause you to think twice about putting a tenant into a property that you might otherwise find inferior. In fact, we have a property right now that is not available for rent because it needs repairs. And so if that, you know, that law had not maybe put in place, maybe someone like myself or someone else would be a lot more quicker to just say, here, you go, you can have it. And it's not up to code, but I, I feel like an ordinance such as that should give landlords pause mm -hmm. before renting out a property that they know they wouldn't even live in themselves. But but when that when that new um, new investor who tries to participate in this recovering beautiful Detroit right, uh, and they find that new barrier of entry, um, or the current um, landlords inherit the new level of responsibility that's coming from a policy that they were not as informed or aware of that also will stunt like um, some, for some of us, our first venture in, um, in, in, in participating in capitalism with owning you know, a rental. But I hate to interrupt you there, Andre. That mm -hmm. is exactly what should happen. I think that if you think about what started happening when the tax foreclosure auction started happening, too many people started pilfering our neighborhoods as investors. Mm -hmm. So if there was a barrier to entry, now it's gotten better where now you have to put a $2,500 deposit right. down you to get into to, the auction. A few years ago, it was 500. Well, anybody can do that. I think that adding those barriers to entry causes you to get and deal with more of the professional landlords who should be held to a higher standard. And it should be able to keep those people who just aren't up to the task and who might not have the resources to even be in the game, it might keep them or get them to reconsider yeah. even joining into yeah. that. But then that, that also will quickly. increase the um, availability uh, to those with money to participate in more wealth opportunities. 
it just, what we're doing now is similar to the exchange that needed to have occurred before the policy before this was ordinance. Ordinance. Yeah. Yep. This Okay, let's it. go over here. Um, my name is Trina Shanks. I live in the city of Detroit. Mm -hmm. And um, why are we so reliant and um, dependent on the capitalist system with 3D printing, with small housing, with people who um, maybe live alone in a large house? There's a lot of other possibilities to try to reach affordable housing options, hmm. but it's like we are only thinking about landlords, tenants, developers, and purchasers, hmm. and, um, and really there's no real system to kind of have alternate or, or kind of get outside of that capitalist arrangement. And I don't know if you have ideas about that or thoughts about that or people hmm. or places that are doing that better. Yeah, I, I can't think of anyone uh, who's, who's doing that. It's an interesting idea. Uh, the idea of, I, I think what you're suggesting is that you know, you could 3D print yourself a house, right? Yeah. <laughs> In theory, right? Uh, I mean, you have to have the land, and you have to have permissions right, and permits and right. things, but I mean, for much less than, you know, the cost of building a, a house, yeah. or even the small houses that'd be in a really small plot of land that may cost yeah. $5,000 as opposed to, you right. know, Well, you know, uh, Faith Fowler, who uh, runs the Cass Corridor Community, uh, I can't remember the full name, Cass Community, said so thank you, my producing staff always backs me up on stuff like this. Uh, you know, she started a, a tiny house community over on the West Side, where she is trying to give opportunity to people who were formerly homeless to not just find shelter, but own their own houses. And I think it's a really interesting uh, experiment. We will, it will be a while before we know how well that works or how far it reaches. But, but I mean, I think that may be kind of the germ of, of what you're talking about. Thank you very much. Over here. Uh, Nicholas Plymouth. Uh, mm -hmm. My question is, what can someone like me who grew up downriver sort of experience the same thing, not to the extent of eviction, but uh, low poverty family mm -hmm. um, who's now doing much better in life, what can someone like me do to help out in these areas mm -hmm. and get involved in the community? Rachel, that seems perfect mm -hmm. for you. That's a, a really great question. And I, I honestly think that you've got to work within your own network. So for me, it is being the biggest proponent of home ownership that you will hear. I talk to my friends about fixing their credit and going after all type of resources that are available. So I would say if you don't know what else to do, help those that are around you and make sure that they're okay. And so that has been difficult for me. I still have family members who are in extreme poverty and I may not be able to solve their problems, but I'm the first person to say, hey, let me look at your credit report with you. Maybe there's something there that I can help you, you know, write a, a letter to dispute or something. Um, because you can feel like a really helpless thing if you're not in it, you're not close to the issue, there probably isn't a lot that you can do. But you can definitely make sure that the people who you love are supported when they're going through those housing crises. Like in the book they talked about, people not having the middle class family that they can rely on. So if that means that you are opening your home to somebody in your family who's going through that, that could be a very good place to start. Okay, I wanna thank everyone who showed up uh, for the book club all summer and especially here tonight at the Detroit Public Library main branch. Uh, this has been really wonderful uh, to have this conversation with you. Detroit Today was produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Rasan Cherry. And the associate producer 
is Gus Navarro. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. A special thank you to Atim Funches and Brian Vance with the Detroit Public Library and to the Detroit Public Library for hosting this event. We will see you soon. <laughs>